This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. This is Mark Rotella. We've got a big show for you today. We've got science fiction writer Peter F. Hamilton, who'll be calling in from London. And uh, later on in the discussion, Rose Fox and I will be talking about science fiction and fantasy. And to begin our show, we're going to be giving you the bestsellers for next week, some sneak peeks. On our show right now, we have Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harvkey, who's going to be talking to us about, well, fiction this week. Mike, how Hello. are you? Hey, hey, Mark, I'm good. Good, good. So we have a we have a couple of little surprises here on our uh, let's talk about the fiction list right now. I mean, first of all, we've got uh, J.K. Rowling, who is who's just moved up from uh, number ten to seven. Yeah. For her non-Harry Potter book, The Casual Vacancy. <laughs> and highly anticipated the, first non-Harry Potter book. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's, and it's on there after, what, now uh, 12 weeks, I think? Yeah, selling very well. Yes, it seems to. I mean, it looks like we've got uh, about 524,000 copies sold to date. Yeah. Uh, this is a book that has been on the list for, I guess it's its second week on the list. It debuted at number 28. Tell us about this book. Uh, we're talking about The Twelve Tries of Hattie? Yes, yes. Let's talk yeah. about it. Yeah. This is really nice, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a great book. Uh, debut author, uh, yeah. Iana Mathis, who did the Iowa MFA um, and studied with Marilyn Robinson there. Marilyn Robinson, who's one of my personal favorites. Um and uh, has been in Iowa for 30 years or, or more. She's so, been teaching um, there for 30 years. Yeah, teaching at, right. at Iowa. Uh, between, you know, she's written Gilead and Home and, mm-hmm. and uh, Housekeeping, three amazing novels. So, yeah. Anna Mathis was, she's an African American woman. She'd been living in Italy for a while uh, before deciding to go to Iowa, which really was a decision that only came to her because a friend uh, applied and got in and suggested that she apply. Right. Um, and she had been writing a memoir uh, in Italy and uh, submitted that and got in and uh, went to workshop this this memoir, mm-hmm. which she herself, uh, when we talked to her, uh, called bad. She said it was a bad memoir. And when, uh, when we say we talked to her, meaning we uh, at PW interviewed her? Did we, we do did. a Q&A? Yeah. Or, uh... yeah, we did a Q&A with, right. with uh, Anna, and we, we sort of uh, called this book early before Oprah, uh, as we often do. Um, we, we gave it a starred review, and, and then <laughs> we interviewed we interviewed the author who talked about her personal connection to the material in this book, which we'll get to in a, in a minute, sure, and, and sure. then also, also her, uh, her, her studies at Iowa, which were fun funny because she she went into her first workshops with this memoir that she thought was not quite good but she didn't think it was you know terrible and um she said Marilyn Robinson was was very nice uh but she just said no mm. um and that's what prompted uh Ms. Mathis to begin working on what eventually became the 12 tribes of Hattie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, in its second week, uh, moved up to, uh, I believe, number 14 on the list. And, and what do we attribute this jump to? The book was originally scheduled to come out by Knopf in uh, early to mid-January. Right. Um, on uh, December 5th, Oprah um, mm. chose the 12 tribes of Hattie as the second book for her 
Book Club 2.0. The oh. first one was uh, Cheryl Strayed's Wild, right. uh, which we saw get a quite a big bump from from being chosen for Oprah's Book Club. We did, and we also uh, re, uh, we selected that as a star. We gave that a star and selected that as an outstanding mm. review as well. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, Knopf moved the publication date up. They they published it the day after Oprah's. Um, announcement on December 6th, and uh, so in its first four days, it sold about 5,000 copies, which, you know, for a, a debut literary fiction author alone would be not bad at all, four days, over 1,000 copies a day. I think um, our listeners uh, out there might be interested to see what, you know, what is considered good numbers for a, what is considered literary fiction for a debut author. Yeah, well, it's funny because I actually went to a, an agent's roundtable uh, a little while ago where um, that question was asked by a bunch of hopeful young writers uh, working away on their first books. And the agents came to a sort of agreement, which I found astounding, that it would be respectable for a debut author of literary fiction to sell 30,000 copies. Um, really? Yeah, I thought that was... That is astounding. I know a lot of debut authors who sell anywhere, depending on the size of the house Mm -hmm. that's going out with their book, anywhere from a few hundred to uh, 10,000 being very respectable. in the entire run of their of the hardcover of their book, um, and so these agents were saying thirty thousand. Thirty thousand wow. was a number that they threw out as as being something that would make. I mean, this was a number that would make everyone happy. Sure, uh, everyone at the house happy. As a different example, you know, Alice Munro's new newest collection, and, and she's a you know beloved writer, has been with us for a long time, and she's written several collections, and mm-hmm. it's uh, sold somewhere around five or six thousand copies in okay. hardcover. Uh, over over several weeks. Right. So Anna Mathis's book, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, in its second week, um, sold eighteen thousand copies. It was an almost three hundred percent bump um, from its first week, but the first week was really about half a week. But anyway, it's thus far in, in two in less than two weeks, it sold. Uh, you know, it's it's climbing towards twenty five thousand copies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just getting that Oprah bounce. Right. Wow. We're speaking with Mike Harvke, our deputy reviews editor of Publishers Weekly. This is Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And we're talking about Ayana Mathis, the author of The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, which uh, we selected as a starred review. We did a Q&A with the author. And uh, uh, just uh, last week, uh, Oprah picked it for uh, her, uh, it was her book club. And so tell us a little bit about this book. Um, well, the book is uh, really interesting formally to me in that every chapter um, is assigned to a different character's point of view. Mm-hmm. And this is not that uncommon in, in, in fiction, um, especially uh, today. You get a lot of cycling points of view. Two or three characters sort of trade off the narrative duties, the narration duties. But in Mathis's case, essentially this is a book about Hattie um, who is a a woman who in 1925, this is when the the first chapter of the book, she has just given birth at 16 to twins, Mm -hmm. uh, her first babies. And unfortunately, they die very soon after uh, from complications from just really uh, pneumonia. Mm. And um, it, it, 
really sets this young woman's life on a very particular and uh, bitter and dark course. But she does go on to have a very large family, uh, a number of children of her own. And so the way that the book unfolds from 1925 into the 1980s is that each chapter uh, is attached to one or more of her children. Mm. And what is kind of wonderful about that in the end and, and it's it is a, a somewhat dark book because of the way it begins and, and also because it's tracing twenty uh it's tracing almost sixty years of, of American history through the eyes of an African American family and their extended family, uh you know, during a time when when certain things certain you know, just living as an African American, especially in the South, was was you know, quite problematic. Right. Um, and, you know, Mathis introduces other obstacles that some of these characters have. One of the children is is uh, gay and in the closet and dealing with that. Um, and so it's, uh, it's fascinating. It creates a really rich um, portrait of not only an American family, but also of America. And you say that the each chapter focuses on a different child of hers. Is this told through that 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 child's voice, or, or and and how old were the children when? Yeah, not always. Um, it's it's uh, primarily third person, mm-hmm. just attached as a, a limited third person point of view to uh, the kids. Just as an example, the first chapter when Hattie's sixteen and her first two babies die uh, it was 1925. The next chapter, I believe, jumps to 1948. And we're with a now teenaged uh, child, uh, or or even older, who was born soon after, right. um, and and so it's it's very loose. And in fact, Mathis in the interview also talked about writing these stories. You know, she was writing stories about these characters, and uh, you know, I I think you could compare this to a visit from the Goon Squad, which was called a novel, but it also could function just as easily as a short story collection. We're speaking with Mike Harvke, Deputy Reviews Editor, Publishers Weekly. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And you said there are a couple of other books that uh, stand out for you on the uh, list. Yeah, well, one of them... um is a novel called Me Before You, which is uh, English author Jojo Moy's new novel. Um, I think that uh, we recently at PW in the reviews, uh, on the reviews Twitter account, Mm -hmm. had a tweet up with with Jojo, um, where for an hour, a lot of different uh, fans of the book that are, you know, the book is uh, coming out. I'm not exactly sure of the exact date, but it's this month. And it's getting a lot of, uh, of a lot of publicity, and so uh, you know we had a very lively tweet up where people were asking JoJo lots of questions because this book tackles the right to die question, um, which in the UK is possibly even more prominent because of the uh, I believe it's Swiss company I'll have to check that mm-hmm. called Dignitas, oh. uh, which assists uh in in suicides oh wow you know what's uh what's interesting here is is that it's essentially a, a novel about a, a young woman who's sort of you know sort of sleepwalking through life in a way mm-hmm. um and uh she's been working in the same cafe in her small uh, english village for six years or something she's been with the same man for a while and they've been engaged for a long time but not married and she uh, loses her job. She's she's let go, and and this sort of 
um, you know, gives her a chance to restart her life. And it's really accidental, though, because the, it's, it just happens to be that the only job that she can get mm. is caring for a man who has been recently paralyzed by a car accident. Wow. Um, and he was a, a very powerful, vibrant, uh, successful man um, who uh, is now a quadriplegic and, and, and displays a, a really raw frustration with his condition that makes uh, you know the job almost unbearable right. um, for the for the young uh, young female character. But as these things go you know she she does overcome the challenges of caring for him and he softens a little bit and they develop you know an intense relationship but all all the while um he does not want to go on living wow and we call this a lovely novel both non-traditional and enthralling this is me before you uh, mm-hmm. by uh jojo moyes and uh we're talking with mike harvkey deputy reviews editor publishers weekly and uh, we're talking about uh, our uh, this week's. I want to talk a little bit about one more title or two on mm-hmm. this week's uh, bestseller list, which is powered by uh, Nielsen BookScan. And yeah. is there another book on the list that strikes you? I've noticed that there are a couple. I mean, we have a lot of uh, John Grisham, Tom Clancy, mm-hmm. Janet Ivanovich, James Patterson, David Baldacci, which we're, we're going to see from time to time, uh, or often, I should say, on the list. But also a couple that one might consider more literary and doesn't the names that don't necessarily roll off the tongues of our listeners. I mean, uh, 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 we've got, uh, well, you had mentioned Alice Munro, Kevin Powers, mm-hmm. and uh, have you, and even uh, Gino Diaz is up here, who I know with uh, both Kevin Powers and uh, Gino Diaz, they were uh, nominees for the National Book Award. Right. Uh, and are there any others, like even Ian McEwen? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I keep wanting to call Ian McEwen Sir Ian. I don't, I don't know if he was actually knighted, <laughs> but uh, I, it's probably because of Sir Sir. Uh, I can't remember the guy, the guy from uh, Gandalf, Lord of the Rings. Right, Sir. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, Sir. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, Ian McEwen is, you know, uh, can be counted on for uh, for big sales. Um, his you know the 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 biggest selling uh, book in his history thus far is Atonement, uh, which was helped enormously by the film. Um, you know, I wrote a, a little blurb for one of our bestseller pages uh, a couple issues back mm-hmm. that said it really helps when they make a you know hit movie about your book. Um, mm. So he uh, he's back with Sweet Tooth and. Uh, which is on the list, uh, uh, fiction list, number nineteen this week. Yeah, and uh, it turns out, uh, even though this book was, it got mixed reviews. Uh, we didn't uh, give it a glowing review, but um, it's it's an interesting book set in the seventies about a female uh, book lover who uh, essentially becomes an MI five spy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of formal trickery. Uh, fans of Ian McEwan will know what that means. Uh, there was certainly that kind of thing going on in Atonement. And um, so like Atonement, this book was recently optioned by the very same film production company that made Atonement. Um, so its sales currently are nowhere near uh, the level of Atonement or even uh, some of McEwan's mm-hmm. previous titles, like On Chesil Beach mm-hmm. and Saturday. Um, 
but uh, just wait a year or 18 months. Uh, See if the movie comes out. If the movie comes out. If the movie's made, right. Juicy part for a you know, young, uh, young female actress. I think someone of Kira Knightley's uh, sure. persuasion. Perhaps. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much. Mike. We've got Mike Harvkey from Publishers Weekly, Deputy Reviews Editor. We're talking about next week's sneak peek into the bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. Next up, Rose Fox and I will be talking to Peter F. Hamilton, and we'll be discussing science fiction titles and fantasy. So stay tuned. This is Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. Hello, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Peter F. Hamilton on the line from England. He mixes science fiction and mystery in his forthcoming novel, Great North Road. It's due out January 1st from Del Rey. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for listening. Um, So, first of all, this book has all of the elements of both the classic English police procedural mystery and hard science fiction. And so I would love to know how you wrote in two genres at once in a way that kind of satisfies all the expectations of both mystery fans and science fiction fans. Um, I, you call them two separate genres. I think they're actually quite complementary. Um, the, the, the thriller, the detective um, uh, plot, if you like, is a very good way for science fiction writers to explore the world they've created. Um, it's a legitimate method of, of getting, uh, getting the detective, getting the characters out of those mean streets and, and seeing what they're made of in the future. So I, I do think they're very complementary, and they're also a lot of fun as well. I mean, you can you can take the uh, the basic trope and go a long, long way with it. And um, what what was your writing process like as you were plotting out? I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated story. There's two murders 20 years apart, and there's the question of whether the person who, who was convicted of the first murder is actually the killer, and then there's all this interplanetary exploration and, and multi-world economics. How did, how did you make that all fit together? Uh, very simply, a lot of planning. Um, for something like this, uh, and it, it's a thousand-page book, it took me two years to write. The first six months of that was, was just pure plotting, uh, taking notes, working out who the characters were going to be, the locations, the world building, um, so that when I sat down after those six months, I had very extensive chapter notes. Um, you can't write something like this without knowing who done it. Yeah. That all has to be worked out in, in, in advance. So it was pretty much all there when I when I began. And um, so you, you didn't at any point go in thinking, you know, did she do it or didn't she do it? You knew right from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was a fair amount of research that went in it as well. Um, I, I visited Newcastle. The reason I chose Newcastle is, is actually my family is originally from Newcastle. Um, and I wanted to, to do something there. And I, I went up there for, for two days and, and walked those streets. Mm-hmm. The the streets that you you see mentioned in the book are actually real and there. Um, I've I've changed a few of the buildings, obviously because you know a hundred years is this is set a hundred years in the future. But um, those are the actual streets, yeah. And you you've written a lot of space opera. So what was it like coming back to Earth for this? Um, I think very rewarding. Um, I wanted to do something different. I don't want to do you know a rehash of the same theme every time. Um, so I think coming back, having to think 
quite hard about certainly the technology levels involved. Um, the, the further the further into the future you go, the more space opera you get, the easier it is to get away with things. Um, coming back down to what is essentially 100 years in the future, you've got to be a little more careful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was fun to do. That, that sort of stretched the old brain cells a bit. And uh, you've written quite a few trilogies or, or at least books uh, in, in series. And this one is a standalone book. Yes, Did you again, decide that at the beginning? or? Uh, oh, yes. No, it, it was very deliberately a standalone book. It's in a completely new universe. I wanted to do something different. Um, I have written a few standalone books before, but I, yes, I am guilty of trilogies, as they say. Um, it, it, I wanted to give people a, a conclusion, a definite ending, without having to wait a year for part two and so on. I, I feel that also, as an author, is, is quite essential to do every now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and we're talking with Peter F. Hamilton about Great North Road, his new science fiction novel. Uh, Peter, you integrated religion in some totally fascinating ways. I haven't, I haven't read a book that really wrestled with the idea of religion and aliens um, in this way. And uh, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about how the existence of aliens affects interpretation of creation stories and um, the intersection of Christian beliefs and environmentalism, which also doesn't get a lot of play. Uh, and then there's also background things like there's a planet that's colonized by Orthodox Jews. So what led you? to really make this such a, a major element of the work? It's a parallel element, I would say. Um, we, one of the reasons I did this is we're very used to um, aliens being the, rat, the man in the rubber suit with a big forehead. Um, I wanted to get away from that and make the aliens as alien as possible, um, which they're certainly quite different in this book. Um, which kind of plays back to the whole uh, man was created in God's image, certainly for Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there is this wild variation, something so extraordinarily different, it will cause people to question what they believe in, which is what all good science fiction should do anyway. It should get people thinking. Um, so that, that's the reason it, it features... I wouldn't say heavily, but it's certainly it's certainly a prominent theme there. I, I I thought it was really brave of you to tackle that. I I feel like there are a lot of science fiction authors who just kind of steer clear. Did it um, at any point? Did you sit there and go, um, "Is this a good idea?" <laughs> um, no, I just blundered on in there. Really, <laughs> it's, um, it's something writing for me is something you you have to do. You have to write what you feel you want to write. You can't. Um, put things in or take things out because of the fear of how other people will react to it. That's writing by committee. It doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing by invisible committee, by what you think other people want. No, I, I don't do that. This, is, this book is written for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope everyone else will enjoy it as well, but this is the story I wanted to tell the way I wanted to tell it. And that's, that's how I believe writing should be conducted. And the title of the book is The Great North Road. We're talking with Peter F. Hamilton. What is The Great North Road in the book for our listeners? The Great North Road is, it physically exists. It, it is the, the road that leads from London in the UK up to Edinburgh in Scotland. 
Um, it was built by the Romans basically to, to reinforce Hadrian's Wall and still exists and is actually about 10 miles from my house. So this, this and it, it is called the Great North Road. Mm -hmm. So when you travel along it, you're going north to it. Mm -hmm. um, now in the book, in 100 years' time, there is a, a portal at the end of it to another world, um, which you carry on going um, north, the on St. Libra, which is the world it leads to. The mystery on St. Libra is, is in a northern continent, which is unex, unexplored. So basically, you just keep going north. Um, it's it's, a, it's um, a metaphor of kind. It's also um, an extension of what is there today. So you can, you, as I say, you just keep going northwards. Mm -hmm. And at what point now? Now this this northern border. I mean, uh, when when you're traveling north, is it when when the traveler gets to Scotland, say, when, when they're transported? Um, the, I, I say this half jokingly. <laughs> yeah, Newcastle is just this side of the border to ah, Scotland. Okay, um, uh, and it was convenient. Uh, yeah, geography yeah, lessons for our American listeners would probably uh, go a long way here. Oh, it's fairly simple. Um, Newcastle is. I'm going to be caught out on this. <laughs> 300 miles straight north of um, of London. So just if you if you think of the UK and where London is, you're just 300 miles straight north of that. Mm -hmm. It being a Roman road, it really is very very straight. Right, exactly. It's like they, they they really did just draw a line over the map and say that's where it's going. And you talked about making your aliens very alien. Um, how, did, how did you go about doing that? I know that's a thing that a lot of writers struggle with. So if uh, maybe we have any writers or, or would-be writers listening in today, what advice would you have for, for making aliens something more than the guy in the rubber suit? Um, look at what's been done. Uh, this, is, this is a simplistic suggestion, but look at what's been done. Look at what your story has to achieve um, and how you can... You can meld those two together, if you like. Um, you need to come up with something that doesn't exist already. Mm -hmm. if you can do such a thing. You need to, to maybe think back to how this creature, this life form would have evolved, what its unique circumstances are to make it what it is. But it does need to be different. Um, the exploration of the other, the alien, is a key factor in science fiction, and it's also a very intriguing fraction. We're we're curious by nature. We want to know what's out there. Mm -hmm. So if you can if you can build something relatively new, relatively fresh, fresh, you've got people interested. And um, talk a little bit about the aliens that you put in this book. I don't I don't want to give away spoilers. So the nature of one of them really can't be revealed until the ending. Um, but the other one, you have this, this sort of planet-consuming or matter-consuming alien force. I wouldn't even call it an alien like an entity. Um, how, how did, where did that come from? Uh, you're talking about something called the Zanth, which is, yeah. is basically in the background the whole time. Um, and that, that is a deliberate choice by me. Um, it, that really is a metaphor. That is the fear we have to learn to live with for our lives. Hmm. Um, we always have something in our life too big to change. Um, whatever side you vote for, the opposition is always there, being very unreasonable and not listening to you. Um, there are people who oppose your every view and you can't get through to them and explain they shouldn't. These are the things that, as an adult, you have to learn to live with, to deal with. So that, 
Byzance is just basically our everyday concerns writ very, very large indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I, I feel gives it its power uh, of attraction in this story. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And we're talking with Peter F. Hamilton about his forthcoming novel, Great North Road. I, I, I'd like to go back to a little bit of a nuts and bolts question. And, and as, as uh, Rose had been asking you about creativity in the process of writing, and, um, it, and correct me if I'm wrong. Now, you did not go to university. You did not study university. And um, unlike so many American writers nowadays who have degrees uh, – Bachelor's degrees, MFAs. Uh, you, 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 you. I think you had a quote saying you stopped learning science, even you stopped studying science, even at the age of seventeen. Uh, what? Did, how did your studies progress from there in order for you to to write, or did you uh, simply write? I, eighteen, it was eighteen. Um, <laughs> I possibly stopped studying it. I certainly, uh, at an academic level, I certainly mm-hmm. didn't um, stop being interested in it and reading a lot about it. Um, yes, there, there are many, many routes to being an author. Um, if you had 10 of us lined up in, in your studio there um, and asked us, you know, what our backgrounds are, the one thing you would, all, you would find in common with all of us, no matter how we actually wound up writing, if we did the, the degrees, if we did the creative writing courses, if, like me, you just sat down and wrote, Mm-hmm. Um, you would find that we were all avid readers when we were young. That That is the starting point to writing, um, is that you, you are fascinated not just with what you are reading, but the way it is written, the, the craft of storytelling. Um, that is the absolute fundamental, uh, and that, that is what you need to start with. As I say, there are many, many routes to, to getting professionally published. Um, none of them is the right route. They are. You get there by doing what you are most comfortable with, by traveling up that very steep learning curve. Um, so yeah, there is no set way of doing it. I I did it this way and it worked for me. Um, it's not a route I'd recommend anybody take. Um, <laughs> but if it works for you, it works for you. And last year you said something in a blog post about writing a children's book um, for children who are the age of your children, more or less. Um, is that still in the works? That is. I'm, I'm actually I effectively taken this year off from writing um, the usual kind of science fiction I do. And I'm just finishing the third one now um, of these children's books. They are magical fantasy books. They're aimed at 8 to 12-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. So I'm looking forward to those being published. I think the first one's coming out in 2014, January 2014. Oh, great. And uh, who's your publisher? Can you, can you tell uh, us that? That is Random House. Oh, great. Fantastic. Great. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time for it today. No, thank you. Peter F. Hamilton's novel, Great North Road, comes out from Del Rey on January 1st. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we've got some more science fiction and fantasy fun for you, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. 
And today, since we had a science fiction author guest just now, and since I edit the science fiction, fantasy, and horror reviews for PW, I'm in the hot seat. And I'm going to grill you, Rose. All right. I'm ready. Bring it on, Mark. First of all, we're going to talk science fiction and fantasy. And Mm -hmm. if you could, Rose, give us a little 101 on maybe the difference between science fiction and fantasy for those who don't know and might be interested and maybe even kind of a guidebook. Okay. Um, this, this is one of, this is like a trick question if you've, if you've been in the field at all, because one of the favorite pastimes for people who are in, interested in, uh, let's call it speculative fiction, which is this big umbrella term, I think Margaret Atwood's fault. Um, and uh, you know, it's basically anything that is not mimetic, that is not set in, in our real world mm-hmm. is speculative in one direction or another. Um, And so within that, there are constant arguments about what is and what is not science fiction or fantasy. Um, So, for example, if you take, uh, let's say you say, oh, well, it's set on a planet, right? And and there there are uh, alien monsters, so that must be science fiction. But if you call that planet Narnia, then suddenly it's fantasy. You know, there, there's there's a real distinction um, drawn that's, that feels very artificial to me. So it's not necessarily a time where, where science fiction pl- takes place this, this far into the future and fantasy takes place this, this far from this date to this date, but has these extra elements. Well, you know, sometimes it is. I mean, if, if generally speaking, if you, if you take our world and you project into the future in some regard, people are going to call that science fiction. Um, on the other hand, if you look into the past, if you look at an author like, uh, for example, Harry Turtledove, who does a lot sure. of, um, you know, what, what if the South had won the Civil War? What if uh, England had made peace with Hitler? Kind of alternate history. I would call those fantasy um, oh. because there is no science there. It is it is simply a what if. And the what if question does not belong to science fiction. Um, there, I mean, there are some, you know, what if our world goes in this direction? What if 100 years from now uh, climate change has, has brought tremendous changes to the landscape? You know, that's a science fiction what if question. That's, that's looking ahead. Or what if someone invents an incredible cheap source of energy that totally changes the world's economy? Mm-hmm. Um, that feels more like a, a science fiction what if? Um, but you know, there there can also be fantasy. What ifs? You know, what if ten percent of the world woke up and had psychic powers? Um, you know, what what if superheroes really were flying around in their mm-hmm. capes and their tights? So I, I that's that's what I feel makes it all speculative fiction is that everybody within the field is asking, you know, even in horror, what if there really is a monster under the bed? Mm. So, you know, all all of these what if questions, that's the speculation in speculative fiction. And that's why you see science fiction and fantasy and horror grouped together so often is because people, some people, you know, really just want one. They just want to read about psychics and their animal companions who can talk to them in their heads or they they just want to read about, you know, getting in a a spaceship and flying off to explore the galaxy Uh, or they just want to read about that monster under the bed. But a lot of people tend to go from one sort of what if to another and kind of range around the genre, kind of exploring the ways that uh, it all connects and the ways that it overlaps. Because you can certainly have people who get in a spaceship and fly off to a distant mm-hmm. planet and then discover that they're psychics and who have animal companions who can talk to them in their heads. So you can you can combine all of these things. Well, what are some maybe uh, daily uh, you know household names of, say, both science fiction and fantasy writers, maybe think people who we don't 
suspect are labeled as such. Oh, well, I mean, if you want to talk about people who are who are thought of as literary writers, um, there, there are actually quite a number. Uh, Jennifer Egan is a name that I would put out there. If, uh, would you really? I absolutely would. She wrote a piece for the, the New Yorker's science fiction article. So Jennifer, or, or science fiction issue, pardon me. And Jennifer Egan had uh, just last year uh, uh, a book out... Um, Mm-hmm. A visit from the Goon Squad. A visit from the Goon Squad, exactly. Which, Which has science fictional elements. I dare, me. I dare you to go back and read it again. Well, no, no, I'm, since... I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil it. But go back, go back and read it again. It's in there. Um, Victor Laval, who uh, wrote a horror novel that uh, was billed as literary horror, uh, and then came to a reading story, a reading series in New York City that I go to frequently, the KGB Fantastic Fiction reading right. series uh, that happens every month at the KGB bar. And he showed up and he did a reading there, just like any number of other horror authors have done. Uh, but because his book came out from a literary imprint, it's called literary horror or um, someone like Colson Whitehead who mm-hmm. wrote uh, an actually really fascinating sort of alternate history novel didn't go very far and then he wrote some basic literary fiction and then he wrote a book about zombies so you know, lots of people are doing the the back and forth and there are also people who are very firmly anchored in the genre who are writing with a very literary sensibility mm-hmm. so if you uh, if you pick up a book by China Mieville for example, is a wonderful UK science fiction author, um, then you're going to get uh, a, you know, this incredible command of language and fascinating concepts that are also absolutely speculative. And his newest book is called Rail Sea. It's a children's book, you know, a young adult book. It sort of jumps off from Moby Dick and goes in incredible directions. But in his version of, of this exploratory story, which really draws on a whole bunch of, of 18th and early 19th century literature, the sea is a sea of rails. And instead of ships crossing it, you have trains. And you have all these different kinds of trains. So there are steam trains, which feel like a throwback to the past. And then there are these fantastical trains that are sort of from the future. And there are hints that it's this post-apocalyptic world that maybe was once our world or was like our world. And, uh, it, you know, you, you get this this depth of exploration of concept and a, a grasp of language that is, I think, very literary and that I think a lot of literary readers would find very appealing. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And we're from Publishers Weekly Radio. So going back to the point you had made about, say, Jennifer Egan Mm -hmm. or uh, Victor Laval, um, about what we would consider or what the public might consider literary novelists writing science fiction or, or fantasy, is this something new that literary writers are doing or, or have, have been doing? No, and- the new thing is the concept of literary writers. The new thing is the concept of literary as distinct from genre. Literary is a genre. It has its own tropes. If you pick up The New Yorker, for example, which I think a lot of people think of as sort of the arbiter of, of literary short fiction, <laughs> to me, every story in there sounds the same. I mean, you know, this is another story about people in Long Island getting divorced and and having depression. And it it, it all feels the same, even though I'm sure someone well-versed in the genre, the literary genre, can easily pick out different stylistic things, different elements that, that they find makes each story unique and powerful. To me, it's all just the same thing. And someone who doesn't read, for example, fantasy or mystery might say, well, all of those mystery novels sound the same to me. Like right. somebody does a thing and then someone else has to find out who done it. And it, the concept of literary as non-genre is very new. 
Mm -hmm. If you go back even 100 years, 200 years, certainly, uh, you don't have this distinction. Nobody put H.G. Wells and Jules Verne in the science fiction and fantasy section of, of their bookshops. Oh, yes, they're absolutely there now. Of course, you know, Wells and Verne wrote science fiction and fantasy by by anyone's definition in the present day. At the time, they were just writing books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, when you ask whether this is a new thing, these obsessive focuses on marketing genres, which is really what this is. It is a way of selling people more books and saying, if you liked A, then you will like B. That focus is what's new. And the idea that when you look at the science fiction shelves or if you click on science fiction, your favorite online bookstore, then you only get this real narrow subset of what's out there. And you might miss someone like Victor Laval. You might miss Justin Cronin. Um, some people might say that you would want to miss mm-hmm. some of the the big uh, blockbuster supernatural thrillers. It's the Da Vinci Code fantasy. Is Clive Cussler you know, writing near future thrillers when we say near future suddenly that sounds like science fiction Mm -hmm. but we call them thrillers because that way you can say oh well if you like clive cussler then you might like all these other things marketed as thrillers so you had also talked about language uh when you were talking i I can't remember it was china uh, mieville right Mm -hmm. now is is language something that is uh you talked about how rich the language was or and is that something you normally wouldn't find in in what would be a say what a a book that might be categorized as science fiction is i definitely don't want to sound like i'm saying most science fiction writers aren't good writers most Mm -hmm. science fiction writers i think are very good writers the difference is that the focus is different in science fiction because when i write a book set in new york and you live in new york and you open that book you think i know new york but if i write a book set on ganymede and you have mm-hmm. to you, you open that up. You don't know anything about it. If I write a book uh, that's set in you know, my fantasy world of, of High Alusha and you don't know anything about High Alusha because I just made it up, mm-hmm. then I have to spend a certain amount of the book educating you. And education is often not terribly interesting or it's hard to make it interesting and what makes it interesting are characters Mm -hmm. and so we get these books that are very character driven if you look at especially a lot of epic fantasy where you have the hero who goes on the quest that's a very character driven story it's about that person and what they do and as he goes on this quest tromping through the land like in the lord of the rings for example the sort of uh originated a lot of the quest stories that we see today. As they go tromping through Middle-earth, you learn about Middle-earth, but until then you didn't know anything about it. And when you have to fit in world description, you have to fit in characters, and you have to fit in the plot, what gets sacrificed often is language. People go for very plain, straightforward, this happened and this happened and this happened language because if you want to get more poetic and more uh, elaborate with your language, like uh, an author like Catherine Valenti, who uh, does extraordinary, fantastical fiction. Uh, she was, I think, a poet before she was a novelist. And you can tell reading it, but it means that her books are sometimes what people think of as obscure or hard to get into because she's doing all those things at once and the reader has to work harder. Can you describe one of her books for us? Oh, sure. Uh, she wrote a series, uh, a, a pair of books, each book of which is actually 
two books, so it's really a set of four, called The Orphan's Tales. Right. And they are nested stories. So they're nested stories like fairy tales. So once upon a time, this person was walking along and they met another person and the person said, let me tell you a story. And in that story, once upon a time, that person was walking along and they encountered this other person who said, oh, but let me tell you a story. And and they go into these incredible layers of fairy tale and fact, all right. with, with a, a frame story that's almost like Shahrazad telling stories. And it's it's incredible. It's an incredible reading experience. And the there is a tremendous play between what is real within this world and what is fiction. And maybe all these stories are true, or maybe they're not. And and unpicking the layers and as people become characters in one another's stories, it's elaborate and extraordinary. Uh, it's full of very strong emotions. There's love and grief and transcendence. Uh, there, there are meditations on race and on poverty and on love lost and regained and on women going off and doing their own damn thing because that's what they're going to do and they're not going to let the patriarchal culture hold them back. And it, it's it's mind-blowing. Mm. It's an experience. So why do you think that science fiction and maybe fantasy and other genres seem to, for maybe for literary uh, readers, have been kind of relegated to a um, two genres or even sometimes even to mass market? I mean, I know we're talking about a, a completely different uh, entity, but... I, it's hard to speak to why. I think, in a, again, in a lot of cases, that's been... Uh, a marketing decision, but I confess that it's mm. one that confuses me. Like if you look at sure. the bestseller lists, what you see at the top time and time again are genre works. You see you know, someone like Stephen King making the right. bestseller lists, or you see uh, Jim Butcher with his Dresden Files books, which you know, his new one just came out, immediately shoots to the top of the bestseller list. Or you see other genre fiction works like in romance or mm -hmm. thrillers. You know, if, you, if you look down the list, those are the books that sell. So I don't really understand the benefit of to publishers of pulling someone out of that canon and saying that someone like Stephen King, for example is no longer writing horror. He's writing, quote, fiction, right. unquote. And I remember this happened just a few years ago when there was a big push for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio, and I am speaking with our co-host, Rose Fox, our resident expert on science fiction and fantasy. Well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'll, I'll do my best to pontificate at length as though I were an oh, expert. Oh, it sounds good to me. I'm learning, so... Do we have so so looking at this this you know the last you know this this week or uh, the coming weeks? Do you see any trends? Well, in the coming weeks, um, or, or I should say, any any big titles coming out in the coming weeks, or or do you see? Let's even talk about trends in general in science fiction. I mean, trends in general in science fiction. Um, what I'm seeing a lot of is uh, revisiting the past, particularly mm. in fantasy. Steampunk has been big for quite a while now, and that's the idea of an alternate Victorian. England usually sometimes branching out into the Americas or right. into other parts of the world where there's this focus on old technology. And I think that has an appeal because it feels very DIY and you're, sure. you're going to cobble something together out of sure. gears and a steam engine and, and maybe some pumps and little bubbling jars and who knows what it's going to do, but it's going to do something cool. And it's this age of invention right. concept. Right, sure. So what I'm seeing now is that has given birth to the American version, which is revisiting the old West 
And uh, you see like authors like Sherry Priest uh, right. really kicked this off. But there's a couple of books coming out in 2013. Um, there's a, a book called The Six-Gun Tarot by uh, R.S. Belcher, which is basically this one weird town in, in the middle of the West where a lot of very strange things happen and uh you know they they get visited by vampires and um <laughs> oh, wow. you know, they they might they might have to prevent the end of the world and this is very much set in a, in a real setting so you know, one of the main characters is um the the mayor of the town who is a mormon he has two wives mm-hmm. and a boyfriend on the side and you know he's he thinks of himself as as a terrible person as a sinner right. and um and then he's called upon to be this holy warrior and you know, watching him go through that is is an experience that sort of illustrates the character of the time of the the old west setting. And then on the flip side, we have uh, Catherine Valenti, who I mentioned, sure. um, also has a, a similar setting book coming out. It's entirely different. It's called Six Gun Snow White, and this is the Snow White story retold um, in a, a really fascinating way, where Snow White is actually not not the child of a king who remarries. It was a child of a white businessman who abducts and rapes a native woman. And and Snow White gets her name as, as a mockery because she cannot be white. It is the one thing she is not. And it's her struggle to fit in with her father's white world with, where, where she feels very oppressed. And, of course, her white stepmother, the evil, the wicked queen, right, um, has, has no patience right. for her. But also she doesn't fit in with her mother's people. Uh, and, and it's... It's a it's a very different view of the same place and time. So I think it's really interesting to see how people are exploring that and are really doing their best to um, not get caught by the myths of like the gun toting cowboy and and the wicked engines. You know, people really looking at class, at race, at um, patriarchy, and the way that women had to both be very tough pioneer types and also contend with the mores of the era. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of that trend in 2013. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you, Rose. And do you think, and one last question, Science fiction and fantasy, do you think it allows writers to to leave their 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 current lives right now or at least the world to focus on issues happening in the world right now and placing them into a bigger context oh, or a different context? Oh, science fiction has always both been a way of getting away from where we are now and of looking at where we are now. And those are two sides of the same coin. Sometimes it's much easier to look at where you are from a little bit of a distance. So, for example, if you wanted to write about uh, you know, interactions between men and women, sometimes that's easier to do from the perspective of an alien with mm. no gender or you know, with four genders right. who says, right. I don't understand this whole men and women thing. Explain it to me. And then you know, from that perspective, when we can give ourselves a little bit of plausible deniability, then it's, it's sometimes easier to confront the truths that are otherwise very hard to handle. Well, thank you, Rose. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us again next week for the best in book nerdery. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.